TED Audio Collective. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. HBR presents... Hi, everyone. You're listening to After Hours. I'm Young Me. I'm Felix. And we are here with Mike Norton. If you write about happiness, if you write about consumer behavior, you probably came across his name. We're super happy you're here with us. Hi, Mike. Hi, Young Me. Hi, Felix. So, Mike, as a social scientist, when suddenly a pandemic happens and the world locks down, do you immediately go into observation mode? <laughs> like the world is a laboratory. <laughs> I think, like everybody, social scientists also go into panic mode <laughs> for some period of time. <laughs> and then as we start to vaguely surface from that, yeah, I do think that social scientists do start to look at things to see what's been lost often. Yeah. And then sometimes mm -hmm. we also try to see what's been gained Mm -hmm. by big changes in either people's individual lives or society at large. We're sort of trying to take a broad view of when things happen to the humans, what ends up happening to them How as a result do. of that. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. this is precisely why we wanted to have you on the podcast. We want to talk to you about some of the things you've mm -hmm. observed from this very tumultuous year. Sound good? Sounds great. So, Mike, what are some of the big themes you've been paying attention to over the past year? I'm a social psychologist by training, which means my heart always goes toward relationships and groups and how people are functioning in those. And there are certainly negative versions, of course, about what's been disrupted in our lives. But there's also been the sense that people have been very creative in coming up with new social groupings and also with new rituals to kind of cement those new social groupings. Oh, interesting. Well, so what's an example? For example, you could have lived in the same apartment building or the same house for like 100 years and never have spoken to your neighbors, <laughs> ever. Yes, you, know, you may have grudgingly <laughs> nodded at them once or twice in a decade or something, but you never had occasion of any kind to talk to anybody because you could go and do your regular social network, right? So like you didn't yes. need your neighbor because yes. your friend lived close by, something like that. And now we just see all these stories of people sort of within buildings, within communities, creating new social networks, you know. So you heard about people taking care of their older neighbors by bringing them groceries and things like that. Now, that doesn't happen to everybody, but I love the idea that even in the moment when everything's disrupted, 
we still find a way to create real connection with us and other people. Yeah, so interesting. I remember early in the pandemic when everybody clapped at seven at night. Oh, yeah. You would be on the balcony, you'd be outside, and there was this pretty amazing feeling of community. Mm -hmm. You and all your neighbors, and you're exactly right. Many faces I had never noticed, I had never seen on the street, but it felt like we were sort of together in this. Sometimes I think about social science as if you were an alien observing like the people <laughs> doing things. So for thousands of years at 7 p.m., nobody ever went out and everybody clapped. You know what I mean? Like it never happened in human history in any culture ever, to my knowledge. And suddenly, literally one day, thousands and hundreds of thousands of people spontaneously decided to go out and clap and yell and sing on the balcony. And it shows you in a way how bizarre that behavior is. And yet, as you said, Felix, so deeply meaningful mm -hmm. to not only do it once, but keep doing it to build it into a ritual that we all know we're going to keep doing as one positive thing in all of this tragedy that's around us. But I think this is one of the reasons why the early weeks, the early months of the pandemic were so emotionally complicated for many people. Because on the one hand, there was a sense of loss. Mm. But at the same time, discovering that there were these moments that you didn't know could organically just spring up and create connections that were previously never there before. I think people both realized they could do new things that they hadn't thought they could do, but many people realized that they'd been taking for granted some of the things that right. they mm -hmm, could do, mm -hmm. very simple, simple things. And suddenly you realize, wow, the ability to just go and knock on someone's door and say hi <laughs> it's an amazing yeah, gift awesome. you know, that we had, and then we lost it. And only yeah. after we lost it did we say, my God, wasn't it so amazing when we could just do something that simple? Mm -hmm. And then even, say, gyms close, and so all of a sudden you have like this extra hour that you think, oh, so now what? Just to rethink how you spend your day is something really that I can't really remember I ever had to do in my life. I think it's such an interesting observation that pre-COVID, we live in a world where so much of the structure of our daily lives was imposed on us. You know, the office opens at a certain hour. People tend to go home at a certain hour. Things just sort of happen around you. And so you conform your day to fit into that structure. And then once that disappeared, I don't know about you guys, but in the early days of the pandemic, my days were just this amorphous blob. <laughs> and it was only over time I realized the importance of proactively imposing my own structure on the day. Mm -hmm. Because before that, it was just kind of a flat line from the time I woke up to the time I went to bed. I think I'm sharing too much. That was really dark. That got really dark out of nowhere. One of the things I always think about is like the aliens looking at us. And the other thing I always think about with humans is what we do with our kids that we think is good for them. Like, so we know with our kids they need routine. Right. We mm -hmm. build it yes. in. We're like, mm -hmm. yeah, well, if they're going to sleep well, we better start right after dinner with the bath <laughs> and the book. And the, You know what I mean? We do it. We yeah. get them regular sleep. Yeah. We schedule the stuff for them because we know if they don't have it, they can get really dysregulated and they're not really sure what they're doing. But then once we turn... I don't know, 18 or something, we think, I, I don't need that. I don't need that anymore. I'm a grown-up now. I just go to sleep whenever and do whatever I want. Yeah. And it's not so great often. We do yeah. need some of that routine and regularity. Yeah. But I think, to your point, young me, we often accept a regularity that's kind of given to us rather than think, mm -hmm. yes, I have to work because I have a job. But around the edges of that, am I making decisions that are consistent with 
my values or my happiness or any other metric we might care about. So from your work, Mike, do you have advice for us now that we're hopefully at the end of the pandemic? There is this moment where you think, oh, I could go back to my old rituals or I could maintain some of the rituals that I've developed. Is there science into what makes us happiest, what promotes our well-being? Do we know anything? So one really common thing that so many people did was very early on in the pandemic, they tried to schedule a weekly get-together with their family, mm -hmm. their extended family, which is a very common thing that people did. Yes. And because of that, they spent more time with their extended family in a month than they had in the previous <laughs> 50 ever, years. Yes. You know, I mean, it was just like <laughs> yes. an explosion totally of aunt <laughs> and uncle time that yes. probably was not needed. But at the same time, it's amazing actually to spend time with your extended family, especially right. for kids. Yeah. You know, they get this sense of being embedded in a family that they didn't have. It would be a real shame if we went back to regular life and just said, let's never see them again. Yeah. Oh, so uh -huh. when you think about the good yeah. things that happened as a function of this, the things that changed in our lives, some of them, of course, are devastating. Some of them, though, I hope we do bring forward because they actually are better for us in the longer term to be connected with people who really care about us and who we have a deep connection in history mm -hmm. with. Mm -hmm. See, I think that's the ideal scenario, right? Where we're able to cherry pick the parts of the new routines we discovered during the pandemic and then combine them by cherry picking the stuff that we really treasured pre-pandemic and combine them to create something new. Along those lines, I'm struck by your use of the term ritual. I love that word, by the way. Mm -hmm. So when I think of a ritual, my mind immediately goes to a routinized behavior that could be regarded as a habit, but because we imbue so much meaning into it, mm -hmm. its significance grows for us. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question is, why do you use that word? And why are rituals part of the way you think about our mental health, our happiness, and all the other things you study? You know, most rituals are, one of the definitions is the behaviors you're engaged in are not instrumental, meaning you're not actually getting anything done <laughs> with the thing that you're doing. So when you sit and stand and kneel in church, you're not like exercising at that moment. You're using mm. those motions to mean something else. Mm -hmm. But if you mm -hmm. look at the motions themselves, you could say, isn't that interesting that people are standing and sitting and kneeling at these different times? So in a way, it means that even the deepest rituals, the behaviors themselves that underlie them, you can think of them a little bit sometimes as random, that we start to do some things and then we imbue them with meaning and then they become like really meaningful to us. So the good news is, I think, that even meaningless behaviors that are random, we can build them into rituals in our lives now. We don't only have to use the 5,000-year-old ones, do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Or even the 100-year-old ones. We can come up with our own that are meaningful, like going on the balcony and clapping. We can decide we're going to do that That's now, and thing, it's going to yeah. be incredibly meaningful for all of us to do that. Yeah. We didn't need permission from <laughs> the ancient past to do that. Mm -hmm. So that's really nice. But I think the... You know I love this question, which is in the morning when you get ready for work or whatever in the morning, do you shower first and then brush your teeth or brush your teeth and then shower? Shower first and brush your teeth, of course. Of course. Of course. <laughs> How could you? It's obvious. <laughs> Give me a harder question. 
So in the world, despite your strong beliefs about the <laughs> rectitude of the behavior, it's basically 50-50. So about half of people shower and then brush <gasps> their teeth. I always suspected half of humanity oh was just <laughs> strange. Idiots. And both sides think like there's something wrong with the other side. Yes, except we are right. <laughs> but then the second question is, if I asked you to do it the other way, Tomorrow morning, whatever way you do it, shower first, then brush teeth, let's say. If I said, tomorrow, will you do brush and then shower, would it bug you or is it fine? You were talking about how one of the differences between a ritual and something you do is that it's not a purely instrumental act. And I think for a lot of people, you are in the shower for much longer than is required to actually cleanse yourself. <laughs> you're, in, <laughs> you're in the shower for however long it takes to be ready to emerge into the world. And so for people like that, I think reversing the order mm -hmm. is non-trivial. Yeah. And it turns out about half of people, it bothers them to change the order. And half of people say, I don't understand why that even matters. Uh, and so this is the difference between a habit and a ritual then. Exactly. So yeah. the habit is the things itself. Like, I need to brush my teeth and shower, and I have a habit, or running, or, you know, I have a habit of doing that. Yeah. The ritual part is the other stuff. Like, the oh, order matters, okay. yeah. or exactly when I do it matters. <laughs> when you add the other elements that aren't technically necessary to accomplish the goal of, like, cleaning your teeth and washing your body, that's when you start moving it a little bit more toward a ritual. When it mm -hmm. matters to you emotionally mm -hmm. that you do it in a certain way— and I don't mean ritual like, you know, people in robes chanting. I just mean on the continuum of ritual. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now you're closer with your morning ritual than it is to just kind of like a morning routine or habit. It's related to this idea of mindfulness, right? I mean, the extent to which you're trying to create meaning even out of mundane behaviors in your daily life. I think there's a richness that goes along with that. Yeah, I always hope there's so many books on how to develop better habits and we need them. I don't mean we don't need them. We all definitely need to have better habits. And a habit is successful when it's become automatic. Mm -hmm. So, like, you don't even think about brushing your teeth mm -hmm. in the morning. You just do you it. Just and then, do it. Yeah. then the dentists have won. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, they built it into a habit for well, us. Well, they lost as a business, but they That's won true. the more. That's right. yes. <laughs> The hygienist have won? I'm not sure. <laughs> Big toothpaste won, I guess, yes. is who won that yeah. battle. <laughs> but I think we want more than... You know, would we consider it a win as a human if our whole day became automated with healthy habits? I don't think mm. so. To your point, young me, I think we want something richer and deeper than just automatically doing good rational things. I think we need, like, emotions and emotional experience and emotional variety. And we can get it in all kinds of ways, but I do think rituals are one way that we sort of bind ourselves to having richer, deeper, different, more interesting experiences. That's an interesting point about emotional variety because we lived with the same number of people for such a long time during the pandemic in pretty close quarters. That also has just this dramatic impact on the kinds of emotions and the kind of emotional variety that you experience. Now you're really admitting a lot about yourself, Felix. <laughs> I don't know. We might want to edit that totally. out. Totally. <laughs> yeah, it turns out it's really good to have breaks from people so that you can start to miss them. You know what I mean? It means you really care about someone <laughs> enough that when you're not with them for a while, you really wish you could be with them. However, that does not mean that you want or need to be with them all the time. Yeah. This was one of the emotional paradoxes of the pandemic. On the one hand, it made you appreciate your loved ones more than ever. 
right? When you just look at the loss mm-hmm, around mm-hmm. the world and what coronavirus was doing to families. And so it made you appreciate them more than ever. On the other hand, you're with them all the time in the same apartment or in the same house. It just made me think about, like, what is your absolute favorite food in the world that you love more than any other food? And then eat that every day, all day, for a year. (laughs) You're not going to be so into it after all that time. Yeah. And Felix, what is your favorite food? Apples. Oh, my God. It's a lot of apples. Apples. That's a lot of apples. Apples. Don't apples have a substance that starts to upset your stomach? We're going to take a break. Yeah, (laughs) a break is good. We'll take a break. Yeah, a break is good before (laughs) this definitely deteriorates. (laughs) Mike, how well did we do in combining work and our personal lives over the past year? What grade would you give us as a society in handling that transition where suddenly we had to merge these two previously parallel lanes? The first thing that came to mind was what was our grade before the pandemic <laughs> in managing work-life That's, balance? Yeah, it was like yeah. an F minus, so I don't know if you can go lower <laughs> than that. Yeah, it has been for many people a struggle. So some people who continue to work outside the home had to deal with the stress of interacting with customers and taking on health risk, Mm -hmm. which is obviously an enormous amount of stress. Other people who were, in a sense, lucky enough to be able to just stay home and work from home, although that is lucky, it still comes with its own challenges. You know, if you think of a couple with two kids, let's say, now suddenly we lost all any possibility of everyone going their separate ways and we're all in the house all the time. That's number one. Number two is we're also trying to work even as we're all stuck in our house. And the blurring of those lines got very, very difficult for a lot of people. Because mm-hmm. we used to be able to, you know, if you had a commute, you could leave your house in the morning and maybe you're on the train and you read or you took a bus and you listened to music that you liked or you drove. You know, you had yeah. this time this where you could yeah. switch from, like, dad self to work self, whatever that might mean to you. And then at the end of the day, too, you could do the reverse <laughs> thing yeah. as well. So by the time you got home, you were back to home self and you'd left work self behind. And a lot of research shows actually that those transitions are really important for helping us move from being one person to the other person. So if you think of high-stress jobs like correctional officers, turns out correctional officers are really, really likely to have rituals before and after work, um, much more likely than people in lower-stress jobs. Uh-huh. And you can see exactly why, which is their job is incredibly, incredibly stressed. That's a Silly word. Stressful doesn't even begin to describe their Mm -hmm. job. Mm -hmm. They need to do things on their way between work and home to kind of leave work behind. In the new COVID world, you're doing work facing one way in the room, and then work is over and you shift 90 degrees to the left, and now you're ready to be your other self. Do you remember a few years ago, BBC Dad... Remember BBC Dad was on that Zoom and he was being interviewed and then his kids came into the room (laughs) and that video that went viral and it was hilarious. And you fast forward a few years and we are all living that life all the time now. And that moment that was so hilarious back then is just become so routine for all of us. And it was because we're so good at separating work and home. So when one intrudes on the other... It's remarkable, you know, like that video was remarkable at the time because it's like, oh, my God, the sanctum has been (laughs) penetrated by the other life. You know what I mean? Like shocking that that would ever happen, which shows how much we keep them 
separate. Like uh-huh. sometimes if you go to some work function and then your you know spouse sees you chatting with colleagues and they're like, who are you? I know you act like that at work. You know, yeah. you get all this yeah. insight into your partner. But now we got it 24-7 all day because you see your partner, your spouse, your roommates, whoever at work four feet from you and you get a whole new sense of what they're like. It'll be really interesting to see if the design of apartments and homes changes over the longer term. You know how, say, an open kitchen and as few walls and barriers as possible, that was sort Mm -hmm. of a desirable way to think about the best place to live in. And then all of a sudden you go, oh, no, I need much more separation. I need walls. I need a room where I don't hear anyone else. Like a crawl space would be so wonderful, so peaceful. The number of times I have been in the past year on a Zoom with people and I'm looking at them and I realize they're in a closet. Yeah, so true. But I would imagine that there's a part of this that's also kind of cool, though, right? This idea that we don't have to be so buttoned up in our presentation to the world and that it's okay to give Hmm. our colleagues a little window into our larger context. That's got to be a positive development, right? I think for sure, if you think about the pressure to never let anything from your real life interfere with your work, is just an incredibly foolish (laughs) thing that we all decided was the way to do things at some point in human history. And it's obviously not good for anybody's well-being or anybody's performance at work to say just whatever's going on at home, just leave it Mm -hmm. behind and come to work and be like perfect person. It's just not how we work. So for sure there's benefits of kind of opening and blurring the boundaries. I think some people still experience the tension of they want to be fully one and then fully the other. Yeah. So I want to be professor person for this amount of time and then not at all for the next amount of time. Mm -hmm. Or I want to be dad for the entire time, just fully dad. Right. And so I'm torn between what I want to be doing right now and what the other thing is. That's where I think it can be costly when we can't insert the barriers when we want them. But I think it can be very beneficial when we say, look, humans do not (laughs) – work that way. And we should help people be okay with that because it's much better for their mental health. You know, you started us off by giving us a really poor grade as a society. And I know you were half joking about that. But I do think that at the end of the day, when we come through this, as we look back on this year, many people will view this as having been a lost year. Yeah, I think there is a tendency that people have post-trauma to kind of try to compartmentalize the trauma and to sort of box it in there as a a lost year is a sort of a classic case of that. Typically, that's not incredibly effective because you're not figuring out what happened and what the impact was on you. So the hope is that people won't just kind of write it off because there is learning about yourself, about your relationships, you know, about what you love and what you hate in the world that you can take forward with you. I think the second thing is that, you know, compared to which year, Hmm. I mean, all of us have things that happen in our lives that are incredibly difficult. And those years we don't typically write off. You know, if a family member is ill, there's all sorts of things that happen to us. There, I think we do try to get meaning and cope and deal Mm -hmm. with it and seek social support and all the other Mm -hmm. things that are good for us. So my hope is that people will do more of that and less of the, like, let's burn the calendar. Actually, that might feel good. (laughs) It's okay. We can all burn our calendars. (laughs) I take that back. But only burn them and not, like, try to wipe it from our memory and never think about it. Because suppressing thoughts is not typically a great way to deal with anything that's happened to you. 
So I was in quarantine for a while during the pandemic and, you know, spending 10 days in the same room without contact with basically anyone is definitely not an experience that I want to have back tomorrow. But is it likely that I think back maybe a few years from now and think, oh my God, I never knew what that would be like if you're confined mm. in that same space mm. and that my memory of it would not be of a nice experience, but sort of maybe grateful that I experienced something like that? Two things that come to mind. One is absolutely negative things over time can become, in a healthy way, things that we learn from. Mm -hmm. So like the teacher that you hated the most, sometimes later in life you think, you know, he or she was really the teacher that oh, uh, <laughs> got yeah, me to yeah. focus and got me to, you know, so there are these cases. I don't mean to equate a harsh teacher with a pandemic, obviously, but you can just think even at a local scale, mm -hmm, negative things mm -hmm. later, we can come to think, I'm glad actually I had that very difficult experience because it made me who I am today. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that happens with not necessarily extremely negative experiences, but let's say ordinary negative experiences is that the mind is built to kind of forget the negative parts and remember the positive parts. Mm. So like the word nostalgia <laughs> exists because we're like, oh, you know what was amazing 15 <laughs> years ago? <laughs> There's a great study on honeymoons actually where they ask people during their honeymoon like how well is it going? And then they ask them a week later, how good was your honeymoon? But then they mm -hmm. ask them like a year later, how good was your honeymoon? <laughs> Five years later, 10 years later, how good was oh, your honeymoon? It keeps okay. getting better and better. Yeah. So on the honeymoon, people were like, <laughs> you know, the hotel isn't as nice as we thought. And, you know, I just learned about an ex that I hadn't, you know, heard about. <laughs> you know, all kinds of stuff happens. A week later, same. They're like, yeah, yeah, it was okay. But a year, five years, 10 years late, 20 years later, like, oh, my God, our honeymoon was so beautiful. The sunsets <laughs> and nice. the dolphins yeah. jumping in the ocean and things like that. And this is one thing that annoys young people about old people so much, right? Is they're like, oh, treasure those years. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and when you're that age yourself, you're like, yeah. why? It's like, hard. What treasure? Yeah, <laughs> I've got a lot of stress. I love this conversation. Yeah. This idea that there will come a time where we'll look back and we'll begin to appreciate some of what we went through, even as challenging as it might have been. And then the good parts are going to seem even better many years down the road, hopefully. Mm. That's such a great note to end on. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Okay, Pegs, I am going to go first because I want to recommend an app. The app is called Peak. Mike, this is your app. Really? Yes, you created an app. <laughs> So I want to recommend this app called Peak. It's spelled P-I-Q-U-E. It's a self-improvement app. Uh -huh. I don't know a lot of people who can say, hey, that's my app. But you created an app. Wait, don't you teach MBA students? Literally every single one of them says, okay. hey, that, that's <laughs> yeah. my app. This is my app. <laughs> so true. But having said that, you need to talk about this app, Mike. So Peak, the idea of the app came from, this is a something we developed with Beck Weeks, who was a Harvard MBA student, and Sendhil Mullenothan, who's an economist at the University of Chicago, the initial idea was just that people are not very curious about the world. And it's not their fault. It's because we're not good at designing things that prompt curiosity. Uh -huh. We're good at designing things that you can listen to or watch passively that are super interesting, like, for example, podcasts and things like that. And they're great because they do spark thoughts and, you know, learning in us. Oh, especially this one. 
especially the, not this episode, but this podcast in general is unbelievable. Yeah. Other than today, just press skip to whoever the next guest is. <laughs> and that's what all we wanted to do is just design things to make people curious again oh. about things. And the idea honestly came from with little kids. If you have been a parent or ever hung out with little kids, they find a stick. And four hours later, they're still mm-hmm. just fascinated yeah. with all the it's things amazing. you can do with a single stick. Yeah. So they have this amazing ability to get so deeply curious about things and test them and play with them and try different things. And we never do that. Yeah. <laughs> Grown-ups, we just never, ever have that mindset. So that was the goal is to design things for people that you can do quickly but that a little bit get you back in that mindset of curiosity. It's super cool. Does it make people more curious? From reports, I think it does. Okay. For example, super simple one is you are having lunch with your spouse or partner, let's say. Mm-hmm. And what we ask you is we pop up uh, bubbles with emotion words in them, like angry, bored, happy, all sorts of emotions. And all we do is we say, guess how your partner is feeling right now. And they do it for you. And then you also just press how you are feeling. Oh, oh okay. So you can compare. <laughs> yeah. And then you just turn your phone. And right away, it's like, really? I didn't know you were feeling whatever. So things like that, we're just trying to get you to think a little bit like, I wonder how that person is actually feeling. Yeah. Am I right or yeah. wrong about it? Yeah. That's oh, the kind that's of nice. things that we yeah. just wanted people to kind of. That. Yeah. Yeah. So the app is called Peak. Everybody check it out. That's my recommendation. Felix, what'd you bring? When I speak with friends about what their plans are post-pandemic, go see sports is way up on the list. (laughs) Everybody's dying to be back in the stadium and see some live sports events. And in that context, I came across a really interesting episode of this podcast called The Uncertain Hour. The episode is called Inside Baseball, and it talks about Ah. baseball careers, Hmm. how that actually happens, how particular antitrust exemptions for baseball then have profound implications, how the sport is organized, who makes money, what these huh. careers look like. Mm. It was it was a real eye-opener. Wow. I haven't heard that particular episode, but I think you mentioned that podcast in general before. Yeah. So I listened to a few. They're really interesting. They have a knack for thinking of jobs and professions You know they exist. You know someone does that work, but you have no idea what it's like. and You have no idea what the experience is like Mm. with that work. The one I listened to went deep into the office cleaning industry. Yes. Oh, my God. That was the one you recommended. Great, great recommendation. There was a study a few years ago where they asked people to list all the jobs. Just like that's the question. Period. Like all the jobs. jobs. (laughs) You know, what percent of all the jobs are we aware of? Just have no idea what the jobs are at all. Podcaster is a job. Is it though? It's more like a vocation. (laughs) It's a hobby. It's a ritual. For me, it's a ritual, guys. (laughs) Deeply meaningful. Okay. Mike, did you bring a recommendation? I did. My friend and colleague, Katie Milkman, has a book that's called How to Change. And it is amazing. So among the cool things that Katie studies, I'll just say one of them, she came up with this idea of temptation bundling. (laughs) And the way that it works is like if you want to go exercise at the gym, you leave your iPad there with like the trashy shows that you really want to watch. And then you can only watch the trashy shows when you're at the gym. (laughs) While you're at the gym. (laughs) Yeah. So she has this idea that you bundle a temptation with the thing you're supposed to do. And with her research, she showed that actually can help you follow through. But she just is such a genius on 
understanding humans and then designing in ways that actually Hmm. impact us emotionally and can get us to change our behavior. So pre-pandemic, whenever I knew I had a long-haul flight coming up, I would reserve something I really, really, really wanted to watch for that long-haul flight. And it made it better. It made it to the point where I almost looked forward to having a long-haul flight where I could really dig into a show that I hadn't been able to see or something. So there's something to it. Okay, so the book is called How to Change? How to Change. Okay, so Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was fun, right? I did think both of you had fun, yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It was fun, thank you. Okay, all right. So thanks everyone for listening. Shout out to our audio engineer, Peter Linane. This is After Hours from the HBR Podcast Network. 